You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome back. I originally wanted to do a story this week on cow farts. Sure. What a topic. Right. I mean, I was thinking it would be interesting uh, to look at how much cow farts are contributing to global warming. Cow farts or cow right, burps? See, cow, well, cow Ooh. farts, because see, farts are mostly methane, and methane is a potent greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of focus on CO2 as a greenhouse gas, uh, but methane is 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. Uh-huh. And I talked about this a while back when I did a segment on camels in Australia. And how that was a proposal to shoot camels as a means of selling carbon <laughs> offsets. Yeah. Yeah. that one. I remember that. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty wild episode. So uh, check it out if you haven't heard that. But again, as I pointed out, it's really the methane that they give off that is the problem. And the same goes for cows. And cows give off a lot of methane. And I was thinking a story about cow farts mm-hmm. uh, could at least give a bit of fun, lighthearted look at global warming. Uh, but once I dug into the topic, though, uh, it turns out that cow farts really aren't the big problem. And I think, Victoria, you were kind of hinting the at burps. this. It's the burps. It's the yeah. burps. Cow well, you burps. know how they collect like the methane for the, the burps, don't you? I do not know how. How they collect it? Or, or how they like not collect the methane, but they like to calculate, like scientists to calculate how much no, methane. No, please do tell. So um, who was it? I think it might have been on our friend Vikram Baliga's uh, podcast, Pan- Planthropology, yeah. that I was listening to. Um, he was talking to uh, a- another academic, and her project was to like measure the amount of methane in- that cows produce. And so to do that, Fantastic. they c- created with like a, a collar, like a feeding trough, but like over their their mouth to capture the methane. Uh-huh. So it was like uh-huh. a, a, a burp mask. A burp mask, pretty much. Yeah, it was like a amazing a, a PVC pipe over their neck um, to like measure and capture the burp as they burped. Amazing. Like I, I love that someone actually had to figure this out and measure some of the numbers that I'm about to throw your way. Mm-hmm. I think they actually might have come from a, a different study than the one you're talking about, but really cool. Um, you know, cows have a, a hindgut and a foregut, and depending mm-hmm. on where the processing of plant material uh, goes on, you get a little bit different numbers. But 95% of the methane generated uh, in the uh, forestomach uh, mm-hmm. or foregut is, uh, is expelled as burps. And in the hindgut, it's 89% of the methane is expelled through, through breathing, essentially. So while cow, cows do technically fart methane, just like us, most of the methane they produce is going to come out in their breath and their burps and not, not their farts. So mm-hmm. um, are burping cows to blame for global warming? That's my no. sort of question to think about. And yeah, I, I, I'd say partly. kind of. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, partly is probably the more accurate answer. Livestock emissions account for about 5.5% of all greenhouse gases. And that's not an insignificant number, but it, it clearly isn't like the largest factor either. 
And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that it isn't something to pursue. And I'm certainly not one of those people that thinks that we can only concentrate our efforts in one area at a time. But if we want to make the largest impact to greenhouse gases, there's clearly places where we can make uh, like more impact quicker, right? So right. to be clear, uh, also cattle make up about 70% of that 5.5%. So it isn't just cattle burps. There's other animal burps uh, that are in there as well. So human, cr- human created greenhouse gases, and to be clear, I'm talking about the burning of fossil fuels and like coal, Right. Uh, and not yeah, not human farting, uh, is actually way more responsible for global warming. Uh, globally, fossil fuels burning uh, releases uh, between 10 and 17 times more greenhouse gases than all livestock burps combined. Ugh. So it's, it's quite a lot. Yeah. But, but since we're talking about humans, uh, what about humans? Do we produce methane in our bodies? Yep, we sure do. Now, because right. of how our digestive systems work, a lot of the breakdown of material is happening in our intestines. We're not like fermenting plants in our stomach. So for us, mm-hmm. most of the methane does indeed come out as farts. And again, I, I love that someone has figured this out, uh, <laughs> but we do in fact have at least a partial answer as to the effects of all of the humans on earth farting and what it means for global warming. Are you ready? I'm ready. As I'll, I know. As I'll ever be. Reese, <laughs> Researchers in the UK at uh, uh, looks like Hallamshire Hospital wanted to test human farts, so they they fed test subjects the magical fruit. Beans, beans. That's right, beans. Yep, they fed them beans. Uh, they gave them 200 grams of baked beans and a tomato sauce, and then they captured and analyzed their farts. This is as I'm saying this out loud. I was thinking, gosh, this is someone's job. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> unsurprisingly. After eating a lot of beans, people had gas. Now, your typical mm-hmm. fart is basically carbon dioxide, nitrogen, methane, and the stinky bit, which is hydrogen sulfide. Now, these people were purposely fed a bean diet to make them fart. So keep in mind, these numbers may be slightly high, um, but the average person in the study produced between 500 and 1,500 milliliters of gas per day. And if we extrapolate that to the global human population, we would come up with a daily fart burden of 73 metric tons of methane and 1,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide. That is, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of farts. That is a uh, lot of farts. Now, remember, we can multiply the methane by 25, right? Because it's such a potent greenhouse gas. If we want to come mm-hmm. up with like an equivalent for CO2, and what we come up with is 2,850 metric tons of carbon dioxide released in the atmosphere daily oh, by wow. farting humans. Mm. Now that is assuming a bean diet, I suppose, but it's it's you know yeah. it's giving us a ballpark number to work you know, with here. Even if you did have an all bean diet, I think your body does adjust tends to adjust to the bean diet. Right. Probably. And some Probably. people now, fart more than others, like especially people who like say are lactose intolerant and still eat cheese. Sure. Sure. Now, I don't know about you. When you say 2,850 metric tons of carbon dioxide, I can't really picture no. 2,850 metric tons of anything, let alone a gas, which, yeah. oh my gosh, is you know, famously light. So uh, whew, <laughs> that's so many farts. <laughs> uh, but what does that mean? What does that mean for global warming? I want to put this into perspective. So that is the same as 1,000 people flying from L.A., to New York City each day. But wow. keep in mind, 
from what I could tell, that wasn't a thousand flights, right? That a thousand That's a thousand people. people. And you can fit a lot of people on a plane. So it's likely just the same as like a handful of airline flights, which mm-hmm. I guess goes to show how much CO2 an airline flight really puts out. Right. Uh, it's quite a staggering amount. Yeah. If in the U.S. alone, there are 45,000 flights a day. Ooh. So, Now, granted, they're not all, you know, coast-to-coast flights, but change that number by, let's say, three flights would mm-hmm. be a drop in the bucket. So uh, human farts are kind of a drop in the bucket. Right. Speaking of those flights, though, you know, it would make a difference cutting down how much we fly and drive. I think we tend mm-hmm. to blame industry for global warming. It's like, oh, what could I do? It's these big industries with their smokestacks putting out pollution and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, 25% of the, the carbon dioxide emitted is from industry, but good old-fashioned transportation accounts for 27% of global CO2 emissions. So mm-hmm. yeah, here's my solution. Fly and drive less. And if you have to fly in a plane or drive in a car, Please do the environment a favor by eating less meat and your fellow passengers a favor by not eating beans before boarding. There you go. That's a that's great advice. That's there you great go. advice. Not eating the beans really won't help global warming all that much, but your fellow passengers they will, will love you. appreciate I mean, it. Indeed. In terms of actual global warming, replacing meat with beans is, is a good way to go. Yeah. yeah, that would also make a big difference. Yeah. Yep. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the little bit you add by eating beans uh, is, is, is not going to make a difference. Uh, but the amount you reduce eating meat uh, would make a difference. So that's, that's what I have this week. Just some lighthearted, uh, you know, fart facts <laughs> for you. Uh, my sources this week were the Associated Press, Food Navigator, the FAA, and the EPA. So thank mm. you to those sources. Well, I'm oh, not up next, we are... but there's a, there's a strange connection with my topic later oh i am excited we'll have to wait uh rachel's actually i get to go next we'll take a short break and we'll be yeah. back with rachel Woo. we want to hear from you you know we've been saying this past month is our share us with a friend program we want you to share this podcast with people who you think might enjoy it we have been hearing from some of you just sort of casually about you having some success with that and people really appreciating hearing about the show i want to hear more our email address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. Send us an email and let us know how you are sharing this show with your friends. And also is what you think about the show. Uh, we'd love to hear that. Maybe read your letter on the air here and just uh, let us know how it's going. So all month long, remember to share us. That's how we grow our audience and get more strangeness in the universe. We'll get back to the show, but we look forward to hearing from you soon. Alrighty, welcome back, everyone. Um, so today, um, so as you know, what happens every once in a while is you just stumble across certain things, or I don't know if your friends all do this to you, but my friends like sending me uh, weird nature things now, especially oh, yeah. since we started yep. doing mm-hmm. this podcast. They're like, ah, yes, you would love this. Uh, and this is one of those instances. Um, and the more I looked into it, I was like, hold on, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just because it's like the the common name is pretty. Uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Let's hear it. I, mm, yeah. 
Yeah, it is. Um, the so tension is killing me. What do you got? So today I'm talking about uh, Deuterogenia ossarium, um, which is a species of spider hunting wasp. Okay. That was discovered Ooh, okay. in Southeast China in 2014. Oh, recently. Okay. Hmm. So fairly, kind of recently. Um, I'll give you the the common name in a minute. Now, it's a it's a decent size like insect. It's about a half inch long. Uh, it has those three okay. body parts. Uh, generally speaking, like it is all black. Uh, so it looks. Uh, it doesn't have much in the way of like a long like stinger or anything like that. All of its body parts are black. It has pretty long antenna. It looks like a wasp it has a really thin like uh, abdomen attaching into the thorax and such um but what was interesting is so this is a a spider killing wasp they go around and they hunt little spiders and things like that um okay and they are uh cavity nesters so these wasps they're cavity nesters so what they do is they um They'll dig like holes and things, but these nests, what they use is they um, generally will use either like a stick, like a hollow stick or reed. Uh, and in some oh, sure. cases, they'll um, maybe use the ground, but for the most part, they like to use those hollow reeds, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty common in a lot of wasps. So what they'll do is uh, the females, they'll go in and they'll lay an egg and then they will have a little dead spider there ready for the uh, baby to eat as it grows, you know, uh, pretty common gotcha. for wasps sure. to lay or like have some food for their babies as they grow and to nourish them and then separate it by a, a layer of plant wall, uh, plant wall or um, uh, like thin deb plant debris or soil, whatever they can pack in. Right. And then they'll lay another egg, provide food, and they'll keep going until they're done. So a bunch of different chambers all in the same hollow reed. Right, yeah. Yep. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and then afterwards, they, they abandon the babies, and which is really common, and they don't care for them anymore. They're good to go. Um, this allows them to be able to, like, uh, lay more eggs and such, and it... Like, they have everything they need, and if they survive, they survive. But what is interesting about this particular wasp, this spider wasp, remember, it, it hunts spiders, right? Yeah. So right. the last layer of the reed before, like, the uh -huh. plant material, and then in the last little vestibule, last little air bubble, what she'll do is she will... Put up to I think a dozen or so dead ants. Okay. Okay. To give them and then cover that again with a layer of resin or soil or plant material, mm -hmm. giving them the common name bone house wasp. Oh. Ooh. That's a cool name. Yeah, it's a really fun name. So there's a lot of different. If only, I, if only ants had bones. <laughs> yeah, I know. I didn't name it. Um, so there's a lot of exoskeleton um, house wasp. Exo, right? Doesn't, doesn't sound as good. Doesn't sound as yeah. good. Yeah. 
So death chamber moth. Um, pretty uh, yeah. Wasp <laughs> so there's a lot of I. Uh, there's a couple ideas why they would do that because they don't eat the ants. Right. So it's like why are you putting oh, a bunch okay, of Okay, that dead was my ants? first assumption. It was like a final snack before launching yeah, into that's the world. Yeah, sort of what I was thinking. No. Right? Yeah. They don't eat the ants. They are spider eating ants. Or sp- spider eating ants. They are spider eating wasps. So they don't eat <laughs> ants at all. Right. So what okay. they're they're using it as a type of camouflage. Oh. The okay. smell that is the uh, the smell and the pheromones that come off of the chemicals that come off of a bunch of dead ants oh, helps right. camouflage the smell of the baby bone wasp, um, the larvae that are in there, because they do have predators huh. and um, there are parasites that will go in and eat those little wasp larvae. Sure, sure. So the smell of dead ants protects those little larvae from other predators allowing giving them a a, giving them a really interesting survival technique like i haven't seen that necessarily before but i decorating your house with smelly dead animals well yeah you're with bones (laughs) so this is the second insect uh in recent episodes that uses dead Mm -hmm. ants as camouflage Dead ants, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and it Just was, I, I was thinking about that too, uh, but it was like it uses it in a different way. Yeah. Um, Although originally, I think ugh. when I was talking about the assassin bug that uses mm-hmm. uh, dead ants, I think one of the original hypotheses was that it was a smell camouflage, but the experiment showed that it was mm-hmm. more visual. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, and this one uh, the. The idea right now is that it is a smell camouflage for them. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, I guess wasp larvae, as they're growing, has a certain smell to it. And the dead wasp or the dead ant smell uh, covers up. So it, it's apparently significantly lower, lower like the, per, per, yeah. the parasitism rates um, are way lower in the bonehouse wasps uh, compared to other cavity nesting wasps in the area. Oh, interesting. So it, it's interesting. I guess it's a pretty successful strategy. I mean, it's pretty fun. Yeah, I can think as well, like my dogs love if they find a dead animal, just to like roll around in that smell and get it all over them <laughs> as sort of a masking type. Sm- I mean, I don't love that they do it, but if you have dogs, you right. may know about this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you you found the nastiest smell on earth and rolled in it. Great. But I mean, so the idea of using smells to mask yourself uh, is is out there in the animal kingdom. Just But just the idea of stacking a pile of dead bodies at the entrance to your nursery is it's a bit much. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, gruesome. Yeah. Yep. And then they just go on with the rest of their lives. Uh, I just heard about their uh, their nest and everything. I'm like, well, that's different. Yeah. And I wanted to share with you all today. The corpse, all cool. corpse nursery wasp. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, you know, common so, names are changeable. They, they, you can just pick a new one if you want. So we can, uh, we can we make up whatever it. we want. Oh, yep. Wonderful. Uh, so we're going to take a break. And then we're going to go to Victoria. Hey, we're back. We often talk on this show about the way that nature 
likes to laugh at the little boxes that humans want to make for it. Uh, Absolutely. We we're talking about it just last yeah, week. Yeah, with the, the frogs All that don't go through time. a tadpole stage, for example. Oh, I don't right. like that. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one. the creature I'm going to, talk to, going to talk about today could be the poster child for this truth. Uh, oh, no. Ooh, okay. I am going to talk about... Don't break my brain. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the weirdest bird in the world, which is a pretty big claim. Right. That's a pretty big claim because there are a lot of weird birds out there. I'm, I'm here for it. <clears throat> is it the kiwi bird? No. Okay. This bird has some, some weird physical features and, and behaviors, um, for sure, for sure. But that's not what is most weird about it. What's really weird about this bird is written in its DNA to the extent that it has been really messing with the way that biologists have, can even classify organisms and way that the way that organisms have been classified since Darwin. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. This sounds cool. Yeah. So this bird is called the Hoatzin. Have you heard of this one? Kirk? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have heard of it. Yeah. It, uh, okay. it lives in swampy areas in the basins of the Amazon and Orinoco rivers in South America. And okay. I mean, it's a little weird looking, not excessively weird. On the scale of birds that kind of look like dinosaurs, it's, it's much closer to, say, like cassowary level than <laughs> chickadee level. Um, okay. It looks a little like a pheasant. Uh, it's about the same size and shape, but has a, kind of a longer neck, smaller head. And its okay. its face is featherless and blue, <clears throat> and it has a fairly a thick, uh, fairly thick curved and pointed bill and a long spiky crest of rusty colored feathers on its head. And yeah, the spiky the spiky hairdo, yeah, is spiky pretty, hairdo, pretty metal. It's got kind of a dark brownish gray back with white streaks, buff breast and throat, rusty red wings and flanks. Um, you know, overall, I'd say. Well, I don't know if you two want to if you're looking at a picture of it. Uh, if you want to, if you want to give a comparison as to what you think it looks like, I don't even know where to begin. It's a terror chicken, I would call it. <laughs> I sort of was calling it like a cross between maybe a pheasant, a wild turkey, and some bird that has a really good crest, like maybe a cockatiel or a secretary bird. Right. Right. Okay, yeah. so, so far only a little weird. We're going to get a little weirder now. I feel like you're about to tell us that they're not actually birds or something crazy like that. They are birds. Oh my God. They are birds. They okay. do bird things like have feathers and wings and lay eggs with oh, hard shells. Right. Uh, okay. But what it eats. This bird eats leaves and pretty much only what? leaves. Yes, it, it leaves. Huh. Really? It is the only oh, bird that okay. is exclusively a leaf eater for a few reasons. So, huh. wow, that's weird. Birds have yeah. very high metabolic needs. They need a lot of energy. Leaves are hard to digest and they're slow to digest. And if you think about right. other animals that eat leaves, like cows, for example, as Kirk was talking about, other ruminants. Right. Um, ruminants, yeah. They're, they just kind of sit around all day. Yeah, they sit around all day and they have very long and complex digestive systems in order to ferment and break down the leaves to get the energy out of them. Right. Bird anatomy is such that it doesn't really leave a lot of room for that much digestive tract, especially if the bird needs to be no. flying. Uh, and the Hoatzin has modified various parts of its digestive system so that it is actually more similar to a cow uh, than a regular bird's digestive system. 
What? <laughs> so okay. the Hoatzin, yeah, it it has a okay. hugely enlarged two-chambered crop, which is a, a food storage pouch, pouch in the esophagus that all birds have, but mostly it's sure. pretty small. Like if you mm. see like um, chickens pecking at food on the ground, they'll they'll swallow it and store it in their crop until they can really process it. But the Hoatzin's crop yeah. is huge. And it functions more like a rumen, which is the, the part of the stomach in a ruminant where the fermentation happens of the leaves. Right. So it actually has kind of similar bacteria in its crop that are breaking down the leaves. And then it has wow. multiple further chambers in its esophagus, kind of like the chambers in a ruminant stomach. And its actual stomach and its gizzard are actually much smaller than for other birds. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So to make room for all this digestive equipment, um, it actually has had to have much reduced flight muscles and its keel bone. Um, and so it's a really, sure, really yeah. bad flyer. It can fly like a <laughs> little, maybe like, maybe like a chicken, maybe not as well as a chicken. It gets around okay. the tree canopy, mostly sort of kind of an awkward jumping sort of climbing thing. And it uses part of its chest um, to help it climb sometimes. Wow. Um, interesting side effect of this whole fermentation of leaves uh, diet is that yeah, this is that they burp a lot. Well, they probably burp. Uh, the sources <laughs> I was looking at didn't get into that, but that's the that's the connection. That, huh? But their mute would be different. It stinks. Right? It smells like manure. <laughs> Fascinating. It's a smelly, smelly bird. It's uh, oh, gross. people don't eat it because it smells it bad smells. and it tastes bad. Yeah, it does. I was looking wow. at a picture too, and it does look a lot like, kind of like the the crowned Victoria pigeon. Yeah, but like chickenified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so oh. that was that's some pretty weird stuff. Um, Correct. And going back to the kind of dinosaur comparison, the chicks hatch with two little claws on the wrist and the tip of each wing. Nice. They have actual sure. dinosaur claws. So they can yes. use that to climb around from birth. And the nests are made over the water. So if they're threatened by a predator, they actually drop into the water, dive, and then Whoa. they can climb back up the tree with their little claws back up to the nest. And then by adulthood, the claws disappear. That's crazy. Okay. Now we are getting to the weird Dan DNA stuff. And in some ways it's okay. pretty disturbing. No one can figure out which bird is the Hoatzin's closest relative. What? Huh. Yeah. Okay. So you're probably familiar with the idea of a family tree for people and a, a genetic tree for different species, right? Right. Right. And I think probably most of our readers are. It's an old concept. Um, family tree was adapted to biology by Charles Darwin as he developed the theory of evolution. And ever since then, it's been the way that biologists and you know most of us conceptualize the relationships between species. So like the distance and arrangement sure. of the branches of the tree tell us how close the relationship is between the species. So like, you know, the common ancestors at the trunk and then the branches go out from there. From the beginning, though, the Hoatzin has been a problem. <laughs> the species were originally categorized by various physical features, and depending on what part of the bird they were looking at, biologists couldn't decide whether Hoatzins 
belonged with the cuckoos, pigeons, turacos, uh, which is another group of birds, barn owls, rails. These are all groups that they've been put with over time. <laughs> so they're all possible groups. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. And rails Rail? are like okay. uh, sort of waiting water birds. Um, yep. But... You know, you might say, now we have DNA. We should be able to figure it out. We look at their DNA. It's just going to yeah, tell us be where a they snap belong. Now, just... Right. Yeah. Not so fast. <laughs> um, there's a, I mean, uh, this is already getting kind of long, so I can't really go into all the details in this episode, but scientists are starting to realize that a tree may not actually be the best concept for understanding relationships among species. And the Hoatzin is one of the reasons, one of the kind of main sticking points in oh, this man. change in understanding. So there have been several genetic studies recently in the last 10 years of different species of birds. And the problem is it, it depends which genes you look at where the Hoatzin goes. Yeah, and other bird okay. species too. Um, so it could okay. be placed within different lineages. And this understanding that's emerging based on these um, different DNA analyses is that genes don't evolve ex exclusively with a species. Right. Sure, sure. So the gene, uh, like one gene in a set of birds could, could be more closely, I'm not explaining that well, but basically there's a lot more interbreeding than was once thought possible. And sure. so one trait may have come from one lineage, a different trait exactly. may have come from a different lineage. And, there's, and then there's yeah. like the whole idea of convergent evolution where like two things could, like a gene could be flipped on somewhere else too. Absolutely. Like, and your separate, your separate branches, I'm using air quotes on a podcast. Yeah. But like these two things share kind of how birds and insects and bats can all fly mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Except genes that's exactly that's part of it and um that's part of it and there's also as i mentioned more interbreeding than biologists originally thought happened and um i'm gonna say something else it just left my head give me a moment I don't know. It's gone. And as I mentioned, okay. saw. and there's more interbreeding, as I mentioned, than biologists originally thought possible. So uh, the tree of life might actually look a lot more like a fishnet, it turns out. And the other thing is that there's a lot more, there's a lot of variation just, within species. Sorry, the, the, the fishnet of life. Yeah, the fishnet of life. That's a concept we got to get, wrap our heads around. All right. Uh-huh. The genetic I'm variation afraid, within breaking. species is a, a big factor, too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Uh, the Watson has long been considered pretty much the hardest bird to sort, and DNA analysis has not changed that. Uh, one biologist that was quoted in an article I was reading said that trying to figure out where the Watson belongs is the equivalent of trying to understand consciousness in neurobiology in terms of the difficulty of the problem. Yikes. So... Weirdest bird in the world, everybody. I highly recommend, yeah. uh, there was a recent uh, New Yorker article from the July 15th issue by Bren Crayer, um, which I drew on heavily for this episode. And to learn more about the ways that the field of taxon taxonomy is being shaken up by the Hoatzin and these DNA analyses, I highly recommend that article. 
Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I have this week. And I think that's the end of our show. So see you guys next time. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.